All right, welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. Uh, that was opening music there, our usual theme from the Stooges, I Gotta Write. I'm Robert Larson, and it's uh, 4.02 on this Friday afternoon, November 17th, 2006. And a couple little things I'll tell you before we get started with our show today. Uh uh, yes, of course, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And also, if you have, want to give me any feedback or make any suggestions, uh, you can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org, or you can hit me up on uh, MySpace, that's myspace.com backslash out the rabbit hole. So, uh, yeah, what do we got going today? Well, if you've uh, wondered what happened to all the people directly impacted by the uh, Katrina disaster, how they put their lives back together, or if you're a uh, blue stater wondering what people are like in red states, especially right after the election that seemed to cement that notion of red and blue states, I'm going to talk about both of those today. My special guest is... Director Chris Hume, he has two excellent documentaries. One is Voices of Katrina, a 12-month journey back from oblivion, and Red State Road Trip, a 6,000-mile journey into the heart of America. And uh, Voices of Katrina is the more recent film, so we'll discuss that first. Uh, Chris Hume, we got you on board? Yes, hello. Yeah, here, here you're just fine. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing great. How are you? Okay, yes, uh... Oh, great movies. I enjoyed watching both of them. The uh, Voices of Katrina with a little uh, more of a um, sober kind of thing. And the Red State Road Trip actually had, had a lot of humor in it, but both really good movies. Let's first talk about the uh, the Voices of Katrina. But before we get into that, let's uh, a little about your background, how you got started uh, doing documentary films. Sure. Um, I guess it goes back to, to college uh, when I majored in, in cinema and I kind of got into documentary filmmaking then when I um, decided to do a little piece on the shopping mall near our school, and it sort of became an, sort of an, an, a sort of a satirical documentary. And um, Shoot and Run Productions is what I, I name all my films because they all sort of in, involve a little bit of kind of not going with the grain, not asking permission, just getting in and getting the shot, getting out. <laughs> and, I, I uh, like that. But it's been a long time since then, and I've done a number of films. Uh, these last two are just over the last couple of years, the ones that you just mentioned. Yeah, so let, let's um, talk about the uh, you know Voices of Katrina story and your. Uh, how did that uh, you know your artistic spirit uh, get uh, moved to to want to tell that story? Well, these God, it's funny. These ideas more like they find me more than I find them. Um, <laughs> shortly after the after the storm hit and all the news clips were coming in and these sort of these quick in and out journalistic pods, but nothing seemed to have any long standing depth to them. Um, it occurred to me that it might be really worthwhile to, to, to meet several families that, that have been horribly affected by this storm and, and stick with them for a whole year and watch their lives and really sort of do it like a diary one month at a time. And so I embarked on that really right, right in the aftermath of the storm and I stuck with them right until the anniversary, this last uh, August 29th. And so the film encompasses that whole year. Yeah, it was quite something seeing those stories. And you, you have a variety of characters and a, a variety of situations, and, and each one unique. And, uh, you know, 
in the immediate aftermath of Katrina, we, we all saw all those images on TV and the, the flooding. And it seems that many of us, you know, kind of maybe moved on after that. And, and however, the, the images after the floodwater subsided are, you know, are in some ways more devastating. And you, you capture some of those in the movies. And w- what did that feel like to actually actually be there? It, was it hard to take that reality in? Of the, 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 well, yeah. I mean, in a way, it, it, it totally... It doesn't compare to just seeing it on the internet or on TV, like being there, especially the first time when we, we snuck in, because the first time we went in, we had to sneak around all the National Guard checkpoints that they put up around the city. And when we finally got in and could see for ourselves, it was like the, the ultimate movie disaster set, bigger than anything you could ever actually see in Hollywood. It was, and the smell was overpowering. So that, and that was before, the first time we went in, it was just getting the footage. Um, later on, when we went back with families who had lost, who were, you know, lost their homes in such of these these uh, these areas of the city, it became all the more intimate because now there were people connected to it. Yeah, it, it, I have to get back. You, you talked about the smells. What were those smells like there in the that when you were there in that uh, after the floodwater oh, subsided? You couldn't really call it anything more than a combination of rotten eggs, sewage. <laughs> Uh, possibly dead people. It was just just this sulfurous, putrid odor that just yeah, it just overpowered everything. And then in the in the months that I would keep going back, because I went back, you know, every month or so, it subsided, of course, just as nature takes its you know does its thing. And finally, by December, it was pretty much gone. You know, just everything had sort of dried up. And uh, but it was it was the first month was pretty pretty overpowering. Yeah, yeah, and the uh, I, I know that smell. I've been in situations like that, but not in in, in the enormous uh, uh, magnitude of what you're talking about there. But then after you know, but after the smells kind of went away, you said nature kind of did its thing, and there's still this just my it looks like miles of of flattened areas or just areas filled with debris that used to be dwelling places and businesses yeah. and. and, yeah. and, and, and <laughs> it's it's really you, just watching it in your movie is hard to take in, and I I can just only imagine what it was like to actually be there in person. W- would well, you? Well, yeah. Well, what 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 was really kind of hard to to grasp was that it didn't grow back. A lot of these areas have just and uh, and and you start thinking these areas after a year they're still ghost towns, and you start thinking was this incompetence or was this intention because they haven't turned the power on in certain areas which is, you know, drives down the incentive for people who want to go back. And people in the film who I interviewed, they wanted to move back, but they can't because the city hasn't turned the power on. And in other areas, uh, they've put up fences around certain public housing units where people want to move back, but they've, they've locked them out of their own homes. And so it's, that, that's almost an intention. Yeah, the 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 movie is not, there's they're not a lot of this thing going on of, addressing blame but there is some of that there and there is this question that that you some of the characters uh people you interview in in the movie they do say that uh we they feel like oh they just wanted to get all the poor people out of here and now they can rebuild and put in what would be more profitable you hear that a bit yeah i mean without going into strict pointing fingers um it comes up just organically in the film that there are certain forces nefarious if you will, that are definitely behind it in the sense of um, seeing, seeing profit, you know, vet, you know, venture at the expense of the people who who live there, 
who've lived there for 100 years and who don't want to move out. Um, that's for sure. Yeah, you do pick that up. And I, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the characters now in the movie. You know, I think most of us never seem to tire, you know, of stories of, of hope and human perseverance. And you, and you definitely capture that in the movie with uh, you know, some really remarkable examples of it. it and they, they had... You know, they all had kind of like different paths, but I, I really liked the, I don't know, the juxtaposition of the former Black Panther and, and then the white mayor of the small Mississippi town. And on one level, they seem like totally different people, but yet there was this underlying feeling, I think, with both of them of just persevering and, and, and having hope for a better uh, future. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was just really interesting to come across people as I was sort of picking out who would seem to be the best people would make, you know, the best stories. Uh, it, it really seemed that if, if to follow people from very differing and very diverse communities across racial and across economic lines, and um, what, what really made this a satisfying venture for me was to see how everyone was in the same boat together, um, white and black. Uh, it, you know, you really did see sort of a harmony there. It, it, it cut through the racial divide. Um, Especially when you mentioned, you know, uh, Malik, who is a former Black Panther, who, you know, basically uh, is a community leader down in New Orleans, who, in effect, grew up in a community that was militant, really stood up, you know, for, for black power, and saw the white man as the oppressor. And he's really kind of matured in his age now to see that all races kind of came together to help out the city of New Orleans. Uh, we're not, of course, we're not talking about the government here. Right, <laughs> we're right. Talking about just the volunteers that poured into the city to help rebuild the black neighborhoods, uh, cut across all racial economic lines, and so that was the Black Panther's story because you know he really sort of overcame his his prejudices. And then on the other side of the state line in Mississippi, where everything was white, mm-hmm. and you know there's more more affluence, is the, the, the town of Waveland, where the you're talking about Mayor Longo. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, you know, he saw in his his face and in his eyes the same kind of, you know, the same kind of struggle um, left behind, um, and and, he, and that was what was such a, you know, stunning uh, bit of irony was that it really didn't seem like, oh, here's a, here's a situation where the white man is getting all the funding and the black man isn't. It really, it just everyone got screwed. Um, of course, you know, we're, we're not talking about the maybe there are the few that were able to get away in there. Uh, yachts, but that's like five percent. This, this, you know, you could see a common a commonality between the two, right? And, and what I liked about those two characters, and yeah, they totally, you know, one's just a kind of average-looking uh, white guy, and the other ones is uh, like we said, a former Black Panther with the graying dreadlocks, and uh, but they they both uh, just seemed like community was very important to them, and they had this community, and they wanted to. Uh, persevere and actually move on and make it, it may possibly had a vision for something better and and, and uh both of them stayed the well, uh, uh Malik he he stayed there the whole time right he never left That's right yeah he well you know he 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 has because he sort of achieved a certain degree of celebrity yeah. with his his relief organization he's actually gone out of town uh, I guess periodically to do speaking engagements around the country but his organization is so big now that you know he didn't need to be on the ground ever 24/7 right and and, and uh, mayor uh, longo was that his name yeah yeah he uh <laughs> 
you show in the immediate aftermath where there's flooding and he's have a has a cot somewhere and he's trying to uh, sort of do what he can still do as mayor and, and yeah, it was that was that was remarkable. I mean, here's a guy, the mayor of a town, the most highly elected official in this what was once a very affluent little town. Uh, the town is gone, and, and his office is in, in, the, in the sewage treatment plant, the only building that didn't get wiped out in, in the town because it was brick and because it was three miles inland. And, uh, yeah, his office was basically his cot and a desk, and that was it. And now it's a year later, and they're living in a FEMA trailer. The mayor, mm-hmm. his wife, and they have five kids. Um, three of them are adopted or foster kids. So, so that once again, it's that whole feeling of it, it levels the playing field. Yeah, and you I know? think it. I, we we all feel good when we see stories like that, and we you know feel I think like whatever the adversity is, people find a way to get through it, and, and uh, these people were had positive visions about all of it, and um. This is Robert Larson on Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine, speaking today with Chris Hume, and uh, we're talking about his movie, Voices of Katrina. And uh, Chris, there's something I wanted to ask you about, and you know, this wasn't in the movie at all, but I just wanted to see if you heard anything about this. Um, I was troubled in the months after the Katrina disaster, thinking back on these reports that we got in the those first few days about... Uh, some terrible things that happened and the people that were in the Superdome and you heard about mm. these uh, rapes that support, supposedly were going on and oh, then you, yeah. you heard about uh, oh, people yeah. shooting at the helicopters that were coming in to help but then I never saw any documentation of that and I what do you have any sense of that was that disinformation is that that urban well, legend actually um, did it really happen I did I did interview um, since there are so many, you know, there, there, there are so many people I interviewed for this project, and only so much could get into the film to kind of keep it on a solid thread. I did interview a woman uh, who was a, a New Orleans police officer who was in the Superdome at the time. She said there was no rape. There was an attempted, uh, there was an attempted uh, aggravated assault in the dome, but no rape actually occurred. No, there weren't murders. Uh, you know, people died. But I think there was a lot, and she was she was there on the site. She said there were suicides, you know, people that happened. But rape was one of these things that got blew out of portion. Yeah, I I was just really troubled by that, and and it it seemed weird. And so you just feel like it's a rumor that started somehow, or did somebody purposely? Well, I think that there were um, rumors on all sides. Yeah, but I mean, just you know, when you when I spoke to this woman who was a cop who was in the dome at the time, and she told me that. That's as close as you can get to the the event, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, and she she was she had no agenda to try to talk it up or talk it down. So yeah. that was for sure, you know. I mean, it, it seemed like, um, you know, the worst thing that happened were people that you know some people were hanging themselves. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Jumping off of the, the the balconies that did happen. So okay, and the, yeah, and, and the how about the shooting at the uh, helicopters coming in to help? Uh, did you know anything about that? Oh, people shooting at the helicopters? Yeah. I... Not really. I mean, that, that, there's a lot of, lot of conjecture about that, uh, theories about that. I, I, I can't really say. Okay. Uh, <laughs> there was one kind of odd thing in your movie. Uh, uh, the, these uh, Scientology people, what were they offering? As, oh, as... the Scientologists. Well, 
Uh, we were at the one that that was very early on in the in the film actually when the storm you know right in the aftermath when the people were there were still huge huge shelters and sports arenas around the country and one of them this was in Baton Rouge it was sort of a smaller version of the Superdome and we were there uh, just getting interviews with people that were sleeping on cots in the shelter and we noticed a Scientology tent up. And we figured we'd get an interview with him. And straightforward, just, what are you doing here? And the guy simply said to me, we are here to provide sessions, Dianetics sessions. And then he immediately launched into a, a pitch, like, have you heard of Dianetics? <laughs> Which kind of shocked me, because I thought, you know, wait, wait, what about food and water and everything? I mean, if their first agenda was <laughs> is to go down there and try to convert people when they're at their weakest and at their lowest, that, that really was a... That's kind of low. It, you know? it seemed just really weird. I mean, yeah, low on the one hand. But on the other hand, just kind of like stupid. If if you're wanting to uh, convert people to your, your belief system, it seems like you'd, you'd want to kind of give them some help for actual physical well, I'm sure help. that they're down there. They were down there providing water and, 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 and some form of help, but... Behind it lay an agenda, which was very obvious, and and, and that, that that's actually very different from what most of the, the the groups that came down there. Most like there were lots of religious groups, churches. The Amish came down there um, to help rebuild, and you know the, the the general unspoken rule was don't proselytize, don't try to push your your agenda, just help. And you know they, most people just left their agendas at the door and they'd go in and build houses. Right, that that was amazing watching the Amish people uh, doing their their work there, and uh, I mean, and it, it and I think there is this underlying thing of of people coming together, and it's and it's really powerful. And you see, like, where are these Amish people coming from? And I'm sure some of these people did nothing about Amish and saw them and thought they maybe looked a little odd, but like, wow, they know how to well, build it was, houses. It was it was it was really fantastic to come across them because um, I, I guess they have a reputation for just being able to put anything up and, and do it better and faster than anyone else. They're just really, and they do it with, you know, 19th century uh, carpentry skills, you know, just they're, so they went, they came down there from Pennsylvania, from, from Amish country, and they were down in Mississippi just putting up houses one after another with just, you know, and they were all in traditional garb. The women were in their long dresses with their, their, their head scarves, and they were all speaking in German to each other. Yeah, you you got it's all in the movie there, and uh, the guys with the Abe Lincoln beards and uh, yeah, yeah, it was amazing. I mean, when I when I found them, I mean, we immediately just joined in with them and and, and got them to interviews with them and filmed them. It reminded me if you remember the movie Witness when they put up the barn, you know that great scene in that movie with Harrison Ford, just you know the solidarity, and, and that was what most of the groups were like down there. There was just a sense of let's just no proselytizing, let's let's just all help out. Scientologist was an an, an exception. <laughs> Well, so and and then it was great to also see some of the people who relocated and uh, went to uh, where was it? South Dakota was the one? Uh, oh North Dakota. N- North Dakota, yeah, and yeah, about as far as you can get from the hot uh, New Orleans climate. And and to see their sort of reactions to it, and I mean, this is a totally different world, but yet they also felt like people there were accepting, and the the, the family that also the Mayor Longo's family that was went to where's it Maine. Yeah, yeah, they they were they they went to Maine to 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 escape the uh, swamping, flooding, disease-ridden wreckage of their town. Yeah, yeah, just and, oh. and then some of the people came out to California, and and I really liked this. Uh, there were some of these guys uh, that 
had never been to California, had thought about it and dreamed about it, and you you capture some of their their comments, and and it was like this thing of some of them were glad to be out of New Orleans, and it was like they were forced to start over, and you know, it reminded me of, of say like a guy who's wife leaves him and and it's just like this terrible tragedy and then he realizes a little bit later you know that's the best thing that ever happened to me uh, i'm yeah. doing i'm starting over uh, something now that i should have been doing all along and it, well that was yeah that was certainly a point of view that you didn't hear a lot about throughout the year where some people were just like you know what one guy even said you know i'm i'm this sounds ironic but it was a blessing and a curse at the same time and you know if this hadn't happened my life couldn't have started over and i'm glad it happened and uh, one of the best lines in the movie, I thought, was this one guy uh, at California basically said, you know, it took something like a hurricane to bring the sympathy out from people around America. They wouldn't have cared otherwise about the problems that were already going on down there. But it took something like this to finally, for people to help. Yeah, you know? uh, that was a good line. And, uh, oh, yeah, I did want to ask you about the Confederate flags. You, you sh- a couple of scenes, you see a lot of those. And, and, and those of us here live here in California, you know, Confederate flags is not something you see very often. And, and w- w- what's what's the deal with that? I mean, I didn't I, I didn't catch people who had that having any sort of a feel of being overtly racist or anything like no, that. It's, just, it's like it's Mississippi, just 30 miles east of New Orleans. That's just the way it is. I mean, racism probably, you know, it exists just beneath the surface there like it probably does everywhere um but you saw that was at the mardi gras because i know along as i was making this film i I covered the mardi gras um and that was where you saw a lot of the confederate flags um it just seems to be like it was was more like a decorative cultural heritage thing i mean it's the symbol of the confederate flag doesn't necessarily if you carry it especially at a parade doesn't mean i am a member of the clan or something it you know it's almost like people forgot its its magnitude because they're you saw black people walking around right among crowds of white people with Confederate flags. Oh, okay. Strange kind of mix. Yeah, but did, now do you ever see a black person with a Confederate flag? I mean, that is... Not, <laughs> not, not, not holding one, but definitely not, not objecting to the presence of them either. And, yeah. and, and as, a, as everybody was mar- marching in the Mardi Gras parade. I was wondering, do you, do you know, should I mention the website for this film? Yes, go right ahead. Because uh, people might be interested in seeing the trailer as well. It's uh, it's Voices of Katrina, all one word, dot net. Voices of Katrina dot net. Okay, and we'll make sure we give that out again before the show's sure. up. And yeah. uh, do, you, do you have any other information you want to give out? Contact information uh, regarding this film. Or, or you know, yeah, or you are well, shooting uh, it, that that website pretty much takes you there because okay, you know, you can see the trailer, you can buy the DVD, you can email me with questions. You know, it's all there. It's we got like you know, names of the different organizations that um, we came across, and also part of the proceeds uh, for this from uh, selling the DVD we're, we're going to be giving to Common Ground Collective, which is the operation in New Orleans run by the former Black Panther. So, you know, they're always, they're always needing help and, and money to keep their, you know, the rebuilding is going to take years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And did, uh, oh yeah, what I wanted to ask you about was the, issue with the insurance com- companies and that a few people bring that up in in the movie and uh there oh yeah a lot of bitterness and this feeling that the insurance companies w- are trying to get away with paying as little as possible and and from a business uh standpoint you can sort of understand that but at the same time it seemed like it was uh, kind of the ethics of it was a little questionable can you talk a little about some of the people's thoughts oh. on that 
Yeah, a little. I mean, that really came up with um, the third group, or the third uh, family that we didn't mention, because, you know, you mentioned the Black Panther and the mayor of the town in Mississippi, but the third main group of people that I interviewed was this uh, black couple, the Mackenzies, who moved to North Dakota to get out of the, the, the mess of New Orleans, and... Uh, that when they, but they didn't stay up there long. The, the, the part of their family stayed up in Fargo, and then, but the, the the elder couple, Larry and Yolanda McKenzie, moved back to New Orleans to try to, you know, get their life started. Their house um, was wiped out in the Lower Ninth Ward with the entire neighborhood, and State Farm basically screwed them over. But the State Farm uh, basically said, and he, he'll say it in the film that we said your roof needs to be replaced, and that's it. And then they took off. Uh, you know, leaving them with an entire house that needed to be replaced. So that's that was uh, what was happening when I met them, and it's still going on. And they've been getting the runaround, and it seems like an epidemic. We, we, you know, that's just that family in the film is just a microcosm of many families uh, on both sides of the racial line. Right, and and um, it's like the film is not overtly political but there are are these things there of you know real questions about the insurance companies and their their ethics and there also is uh sure people do point some blame at, at the bush administration which uh, many of us are right the, the film isn't overtly political but within when, when an issue like this like katrina comes up you don't have to be overtly political it comes up inevitably i mean it's just when you interview these people it's just it just plains you know it just comes out organically that, you know, the government failed, the insurance companies have been uh, running for cover, and you don't need to, you know, hammer someone over the head with, this is political. It, it just, it's just out there in the, in the open. Right, yeah. And that's, that's kind of what this film direction took. It was really, in, in, on the front, this film is a diary of several different groups of people, and the politics kind of bubbles up from beneath on its own. It, did... Chris, did you go into making this film with any sort of uh, preconceived notions that then after doing this it kind of changed or or expanded or? Well, it did. I mean, yeah, things never are as you go in. They never they change as you as you as you move along with them and as you meet the people, and as you you know you learn things as you go too. So I mean, I basically went in with a very simple notion of following several people over the course of a year and came out with there are a lot more than those people in the film. There's all those other different there's the jazz funeral section, there's a whole section on um the uh the FEMA trailers being hidden behind fences unused. Um, yeah. at an amusement park. Did you see that part? Yes, and and that was uh have you found out anything more about that? Has FEMA said anything? why those trailers are all sitting there? No, they were very. They wouldn't give us any interviews. They were, in fact, they shoot us away, and so we ended up having to find out for ourselves what they were and how many. We counted them from the air, and uh, it just it just looked like a either a horrendous disconnect between organization and getting the stuff these trailers to people who needed them, or they were just simply hoarding them. That's the big mystery, you know. I mean, at best, it's incompetence. At worst, it's on purpose. Yeah, yeah, in some agenda there. Uh, so, so Chris, what would you uh, tell people who are interested in the subject of, uh, I mean, obviously to see your movie, uh, Voices of Katrina, they, they, to, to check that out, but what would you also tell them about if they want to know more about what happened to all the people and what they could still do to help out? 
Um, well, you can go to the site. Um, in terms of what's happening, Common Ground Collective is the one group that we found out that really sort of is an ongoing relief organization where you can provide help. Um, on the VoicesOfKatrina.net site, there's a link to them. You can go to their site and see what they're doing and help out. And um, other than that, the, the the other people in the film, I'm just going to keep in touch with on my own, perhaps through a blog or something, which is, which we've got yet to put up. But, um, yeah, you know, we could have made a five-year film out of this. It really could have been. I mean, it just, it's such a huge uh, struggle. Um but I guess you know, that would be the thing right now. You know, if you wanted to check out on the site, is you know, up current update from Tommy Longo or uh, the mayor of Waveland, Mississippi. You know, we'll, we'll probably that might be a, a good idea. Uh, but the site is up now, and we're going to add things to it like that, so you can stay updated. So if you do, if anybody out there is interested in, you know, seeing the film and keeping updated on these people's lives, it'd be very interesting because it's an ongoing, ongoing thing. It's by no means over. Okay, and your web address again. VoicesOfKatrina.net. No spaces. VoicesOfKatrina.net. And that's uh, Voices of Katrina, a 12-month journey back from oblivion. Chris Hume, director, our guest today. So, uh, Chris, um, do you uh, feel uh, we just had this election and we now have uh, Democrats in control of uh, Congress in where most of us are feeling like, well, there's going to be some oversight now that wasn't there before. Do you think uh, some things are going to come out in regard to how uh, the government uh, reacted to the Katrina? Well, you know, they had better do that, because if you go back to 1998-99 when the Republicans impeached Clinton over something as small as uh, infidelity, how could they let this guy get away with you know, these, these monumental crimes. <laughs> um, I have my opinions, but, I mean, it's just plain math. If you look at it, how, you know, if one guy goes down because of, you know, some private affair, uh, they've got to hold accountable Bush for, for these things. And, you know, it shouldn't be a witch hunt. It shouldn't be a high-profile vilification, which is going to obviously, make, you know, might drive people to sympathize with him, but I don't know. I think, you know, enough has happened. But they've got to they've definitely not just let it sweep it under the rug. That would be the worst thing they could do. It's got to be done, but it's got to be done with an air of civility and an air of authority without it being a witch hunt, even though there are plenty of witches out there. <laughs> Well, I, I agree with you, and you just got to start with some basic investigations, and you go where those lead you. And I, I sure, think I mean, it's just it would be a crime to not do it. They would, you know what I mean? <laughs> if you, you know, you read the papers every day. This, 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 everything going on in Iraq and all the other things, you know, from environmental oversights and neglect. It's they, 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 the Judiciary Committee certainly has to take into hand all the uh, subpoenas that would be handed down. Um, otherwise, the Democrats are going to earn their reputation as being spineless if they do nothing. Yeah, um, yeah. So spineless or being a rubber stamp uh, Congress, right. I don't know what's yeah, worse. Yeah, you've got to make sure they walk the balance to not look spineless, but also not look vindictive. And if they can carry that off, then they deserve, to, to, they deserve the, the elections that they just earned. Right, right. So, okay, so now that we're, we're talking a little bit more politically, let's let's move into to talking about your earlier movie, which is a little more political, but um, Red State Road Trip, which was a really fun movie to watch. And uh, so you did that in conjunction with uh, truthout.org, uh, a website where I found a lot of good information over the last uh, yeah. couple of years. Uh, what's your yeah. uh, relationship with Truthout? Well, for a number of years, I'd been doing uh, news 
dispatches for them, uh, video news dispatches, uh, mini documentaries, if you will, where we would cover events in five or six minute little pods, load them up to their site, and you can play them on their on their uh, on their website. Oh, okay. Well, I've probably seen uh, several of those. In, uh, well, yeah, we did a number of them. I mean, yeah. going all the way back to the Republican convention in New York in 2004 and a whole lot of other things. And, you know, it, just, it was a really great way of getting stuff out there, getting stories out there that generally don't get seen. And they have such a wide audience that it really was a great vehicle. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's, uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm glad you you teamed up with them for this movie. And let's uh, talk about what, you know, what were your feelings on Inauguration Day 2005 when you set off on this uh, 6,000 mile uh, journey of the Bush supporting states? Yeah, well, it, it all kind of started a little before that when I was, as a lot of people were, pretty, pretty, pretty distressed by the outcome of the uh, presidential election. I was living in New York at the time, and I was planning to move to L.A. in January, and I had to drive across the country. And it just occurred to me, like in a flash one morning when I was sitting there kind of sulking, that, hey, I have to meet all these people. If I'm going to drive across the country, I'm not going to just speed on the interstates. I'm going to just take a month and just zigzag across the, the, the little tiny highways and to all those little towns that nobody ever goes to that supposedly put Bush into office again, and meet these people and make a film about them. And so that's what happened. And it's 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 great seeing some of these small towns and and uh, you know I'm living here in Southern California and and I've done a little bit of traveling I haven't been to the Deep South since I was a child but so it's uh, like a totally different world and you see that people and seem quite a bit different than than people in L.A. or New York or even here in Orange sure. County but yet at the same time you see well. They're really not that different. I mean, there's some oddball characters who say some things that sort of don't make sense, but we certainly have those kind of people around here in Southern California as well. well. Yeah, that that was kind of the outcome of the film. I mean, it would have been easy to just seek out the crazies and and edit out the, the normal people, but the general thought here was to just let it kind of take its own course. And we interviewed people not knowing what they were going to say. And we went to places that we figured were going to be hardcore, red state, fundamentalist. And we'd interview people, and you'd get the most surprising answers. Sometimes they would sound very progressive. I mean, I guess one of the most interesting outcomes of the film was a lot of these people voted for Bush. And then when I asked them what mattered most to them, their values were democratic and progressive. Like, they say, well, you know, I think we need cleaner air. Boy, we could sure use health care. <laughs> and... <laughs> That's what really was surprising, was these people knew what they wanted, and they voted for the guy that would deliver the opposite. Yeah, and when you kind of ask them a follow-up question to sort of like, wait a second, this doesn't quite add up, and then, uh, you know, I remember one character was like, well, maybe I need to look at this a little more, or, yeah. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, he was, that was a guy in Nebraska, yeah, literally, he was one of the most contentious people I met, he was... His attitude towards abortion was, "Well, let the fourteen-year-old rape victim deal with it." You know, mm-hmm. that was a that was a very upsetting interview. And then, yeah, and then at the end of the interview, we started to like, as I would say, stick his toe out the door. Like, maybe I'll think about looking at things from a bigger light. And then he kind of like caught himself and went, "Oh, but I can't because I vote straight Republican." <laughs> and uh, 
that was probably one of the more extreme people on the trip. But that was it was interesting how like you know, you know how people are so entrenched in their ways on both sides that uh, you know that that's how things turned out the way they did. Yeah, it, it was a couple a couple of people that, that said you know they voted for Bush, but then they they really couldn't give an answer why. Some of them, it was kind of like, well, I don't really know who the other guy is or something like that. Well, yeah, and I guess on that front, you could blame the Democrats for not even bothering to go into certain states and making any type of profile. Uh, there was a, there were some parts of Mississippi where they just didn't even know who John Kerry was. They would just call him, well, I don't know who the other guy was, so I <laughs> voted for Bush. Yeah, and, and, and you're and right. There were some places where they didn't even know who Bush was. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it's really, there are some great comical moments, and in a certain sense it's sad, of course, because we have a democracy and it's supposed to be a participatory thing, and it's kind of hard for it to work when people are so uninformed, and uh, and, and I, I, you know, I'm sure you could have gone to uh, blue states and and found people equally as as uninformed. That's true, yeah. But what I found... uh, interesting in this sort of came out and even in the the reddest areas i mean and if you look at even the way people voted and the numbers and in the states where bush won with the largest uh margin in 2004 it was still like whatever 25 percent people vote against him so i mean that's you know uh 25 out of 100 people that don't feel that way so you there's this thing of we say red and blue states but really all the states are purple and, and they're just varying shades yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the outcome of this film was because uh, I start at the, the beginning of the film. I'm, I'm sort of standing at the state line of Virginia, kind of like Rod Serling as we're entering the Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. and I'm like sort of like behind me lies an endless field of red. Uh, the beginning of the film makes it feel like we're about to enter some other world, and we're I'm going to take you on this journey to the, into this disturbing place. And then, you know, an hour later, we've come out the other side at the California state line. Uh, you know, not giving away the ending here because there's so much along the way that it's, it's, it's crazy and funny and surprising and all those things. But at the very end, I'm standing at the California state line 6,000 miles later because we drove in so many zigzags. And I'm like, you know, this whole red and blue thing, it doesn't really exist. It's kind of uh, a myth, kind of a legend. And that was the surprise. That, like you said, you could go to the blue states and probably meet a lot of fundamentalist Christian militant types and go into the red states and you can meet a lot of people who want clean air and want tolerance for all. So it's, uh, it's, it's very much, uh, I think it's, it's a hyped up uh, legend because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot more convenient for the media to like, it also, it, it creates a sense of, uh, you know, it, it makes a better story, this divided world, divided country. Oh yeah. People like us versus them. And then they're, yeah, it, it's sexier, you know, but in the end, it's not quite as clean as that. And that's what we did. We dug up more by accident, just because we were expecting to just be getting down and dirty with a bunch of freaks. And, yeah. And uh, what did and, you ever get anybody? Uh, uh, you know, who, who's this uh, Yankee liberal coming down here? Is any any reactions like that? Yeah, there was there was a little of that off camera, you know, that. I mean, I I, present, I presented myself pretty impartially, but I do kind of come across as the, you know, uh, a, a liberal, uh, <laughs> and I, I and I'll make no I'll make no bones about it. But um, people were not hostile, but those that were very very different from me. And I mean, um, uh, for sure, when you see this film, there, you you'll see some pretty 
crazy points of view and some pretty upsetting um, points of view. Um, yeah. They were friendly about it at the same time. They were, you know, they would say things that were like you, 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 you scratch it. My God, did they actually say that? But they were friendly. They were civil. Yeah. This is out the rabbit hole on KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson speaking today with Chris Hume, and uh, he's a movie director. Uh, made some excellent documentaries, and we're talking today about his. Uh, uh, film called Red State Road Trip and also Voices of Katrina, which we were talking about in the first half of the show. And uh, uh, Chris, your uh, website again? Oh, this is redstateroadtrip.com. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you have a different one for each film redstateroadtrip.com, yeah. and the other one for the Voices of Katrina is. Yeah, uh, the other one is voicesofkatrina.net. They are interlinked. You go to one, you can click to go to the other. But Red State Road Trip, which we've been talking about, is, it's uh, just simply redstateroadtrip.com, no spaces. And you can see the trailer, you can buy the DVD, and you can also take a little slideshow trip across the country with still photos and all that. And, so. and I, I think these, these movies definitely make a good pair. And, and there's this, uh, with uh, the Voices of Katrina movie, you it's you're going down there into the south, and, you know, red state area, but then you see all of these uh, people from the north coming down and helping out and then you see people being displaced and having to go to northern states and, and there's this real kind of coming together and and then in the red state road trip where it's more of like okay now this is more we're going to see a movie of how people are different in red states and blue states but again as we said you there is some of that but you also see that there are the shades of purple everywhere and that it's uh, uh it's it's um uh, yeah, I think they re- really go together. When you were making the second one, Voices of Katrina, were you thinking uh, along those lines? Well, I'd say it was probably much more intimate on Voices of Katrina. Whereas Red State Road Trip, you never meet the same people again. You know, you, you go into a diner in Iowa, and then you're off to the next place. You never meet them again. Voices of Katrina, uh, the general feeling was, this is we're going to see these people again every month, and we're going to revisit them. So it was a much different feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd hear their opinions. But you, you'd get to know them over the course of the, of the movie. Um, that, that, whereas Red State Road Trip, it's just, it, it was much more vignettes, um, you know, short, quick, you know, quick, in, in, you know, in and out. Well, yeah, I, exactly. But I mean, meant more of the idea of like, let's let's get behind this whole simplicity of red state and blue state. And, and it, I mean, I think... Y- y- you saw that even in the voices of Katrina movie, and that's what wasn't what it was. Well, I mean, yeah, well, the sense of solidarity and like divides being broken down. Yeah, I think yeah, you saw that. I think in in, in voices of Katrina, it's more like you you know, if you take the government and all the establishment away, where a lot of the the uh, injustices occurred, the people below the radar were working together, and the divides were coming down between previously. Uh, groups that would have probably had nothing to do with each other suddenly working together mm-hmm. below the radar, below the the, uh, the high profile government level. That's where all the good was happening. And yeah, you can see exactly. that definitely. Uh, one of the most interesting characters in in your Red State Road Trip was the uh, the old guy in Kansas. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he sort of became the de facto star of Red State Road Trip. Uh, that was just one of those things. I don't know, should we give that away? Well, yeah, let's let's save that. Tell people well, to go out and check out Red um, State Road Trip. But, yeah, this guy is, uh, well, let's put it this way. We can't um, repeat a lot of what he said over the air because... Well, it- yeah, um, but you also, the basic thing about 
Western the guy in Western Kansas was you can't judge a package by its wrapping. Um, I had there's a book out called What's the Matter with Kansas? Yeah, and it's it's been a, you know you may have heard of it, but it, it basically denotes that Kansas is sort of the barometer for the rest of the country and and how everything has just gone so far to the right that it seems irreparable. And in the book. I was reading the book before I left on this trip. I was just doing some research. The book mentioned a particular man in the western prairies of Kansas who puts all this artwork up on the side of the highway that is just another example of crazy right-wing insanity. <laughs> and if you want to, you know, see an example of how bad Kansas has become, go check out this man's art. And so we decided to go meet him. Apparently the author of this book... Um, you know, no no discredit to him because the book is great, except he never met the guy, apparently, because he just judged him by his artwork. Well, we went into his crazy little forge. It was like <laughs> something out of Lord of the Rings. You know, this, this guy, his nose is all, like, covered with soot, and he's wearing these big overalls, and he's literally throwing tires into this furnace to, to, to heat up the, the metal that he forges. <laughs> yeah. And as soon as we put a microphone in front of him, the first, he, he, well, he, he, he goes into a string of curses, and it's all about Bush. You know, he, here he is in the reddest part of the one of the reddest states, and the last thing we expected was this guy is a complete progressive. You know, he, you know, he just talked it up about you know we, if we could take all the money we spent in Iraq back here, we'd have universal health care for all. And he just went on and on. And I have to, of course, you know, but you you have to be there. You'd have to hear this guy because every time he says all these things, it makes perfect sense. Every other word is a swear word. And he's like a 70-year-old man, too. Just an old crotchety guy, just uh, one of those characters that yeah. if you were writing a, a dramatic piece, you you would love to be able to write a character like that. And this is a real-life guy. Yeah, and I've kept in touch with him. I actually uh, sent him a, a copy of the film, and he goes, Oh, I want, I want more! <laughs> and he doesn't have a checking account or anything. You know, he just sent me like a $100 bill for it, and I sent him a bunch of tapes, you know, so he could sit, spread them around his, you know, Dodge City and all these towns in western Kansas where he's got friends. Because, you know, he's sort of, he loves hamming it up in front of the camera, but he also lives so far away from everywhere that he's, he's like a hermit, you know? Out there on the, you know, it took three hours to get from, you know, Wichita, so... But he was sort of one of those gems along the way that made this film so much more than just a uh, a damning account of how evil the, the middle of the country is, which is what is such an easy point of view to take if you sit in your chair in San Francisco or L.A. or New York and just kind of, you know, having never visited there, it's easy to get that, that point of view. Yes, and, and that, that character, though... Uh... Check out the movie Red State Road Trip. Uh, just, just for him alone, it's, it's worth well, seeing it. Well, yeah, redstateroadtrip.com is the way to go if you want to, you know, get a sense of what this is like. Yeah, so it's it's this thing of uh, you, uh, right, I mean, uh, I've lived here in Southern California my whole life, and, uh, you know, I... I certainly have notions, uh, preconceived notions of what people like are in those states, and, and you find some truth in that, but you definitely find these exceptions, and, and I think people are, are doing themselves a disservice if they, they do make that sort of stereotype that everybody in those, the states is, is a certain way, and even the it people... Was. What's that? Oh, it was very... Oh, go on. Yeah, and, and, and even the people who do fit the stereotype, you, you'd never... Uh, well... Most of them, you felt like if you really had time to sit and talk with this person and and could show them a lot of information, you could actually get them to sort of change their mind. I just most, not all of them. Probably, I mean, because they're the general 
feeling I came away with after driving across the country, even you know, even in early 2005 in the spring, when Bush was still pretty popular, was that his support, as widespread as it was, was skin deep. Mm-hmm. So it didn't take much, and I would think of doing another one. I've actually had people email, you know, who've, who've ordered the DVD, they've seen it, and I've gotten emails back saying, why don't you do a sequel now, now that the pendulum is swung, and, you know, <laughs> the war has turned so sour. And I thought, it's an idea that's, you know, I have, I've entertained. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, one other character that we'll sort of uh, uh, titillate people with uh, is uh, the woman... Uh in the sex shop, and what state was that in? It, that was in Alabama. Yeah, <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> so yes, right. That, about I, in a certain sense, one of the most repressive states, and you know, has a lot of laws on the books against a lot of different kinds of sexual activity and that sort of thing. And uh, so she's working at this sex shop that's just like a sex shop that you see here with all the toys and everything. And uh, mm-hmm. but uh, she had some. You know, really interesting thoughts and comments about things, and uh, yeah, well, you want to say anything about her real quick? Well, yeah, basically, um, Alabama—it's been a constant battle, but the, the state legislature there has been trying to pass a law to outlaw the use, the sale and use of sex toys, uh, making it a crime to have a dildo. And um, so we were passing through there, and then we've been checking out the news about this, and. We figured, let's go to a sex shop as we're in Alabama and, and interview the, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the only ones that exists. Well, pretty much was the only one. And she, she was just so, you know, level-headed about it, you know, very, very Bible Belt oriented, but, uh, you know, the whole area. And her, 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 she was just so straightforward. She goes, look, you know, a lot of these people who are condemning this and probably voting against it probably have one themselves. <laughs> and they should focus on things, you know, more important things like education. You know, just it's it's just so obvious that priorities, and that 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 was sort of a real indicator of the whole country that you know people have been, you know, get I call them the the almost intangible issues, you know, things that will never even touch them, like you know, gay marriage or, or having a dildo in your house or. Or, or a woman choosing to, you know, have an abortion. You know, 98% of the time, these things won't even touch the people who vote against them, but they're just so, you know, it's repeated over and over again on the talk radio and pundits and the preachers that they they take these issues and raise them above the issues that matter and make them. But so she, yeah, the woman in the sex shop in Alabama was just a very interesting example of, of this sort of puritanical, you know, wave that sort of is sort of... You know they haven't won, but they're they're fighting it, and it's a, it's one of those things. The law hasn't been passed, but they because they, always they're always suing and appealing, and and it's not just Alabama; it's Texas and Georgia as well. And it, did you? Uh, I mean, this comes up a bit in the movie of the churches and people. It seems like the church is like just a really big influence in, in people's lives and how they think politically and otherwise, more so than it is here, say in California. Well, yeah, yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> that's that's across a lot of places. You know, because um, the churches are also mouthpieces for politics. You know, it, and and it, and it becomes um, a sort of a place where they, they they can preach who to vote for and what to vote for, even if it's not direct. It's it's definitely sort of a passive aggressive way of getting people to vote. And that was something we came across. And uh, we we visited a couple of big Baptist church services on the on the Red State road trip. And that's where we got some of the more uh, disturbing interviews. Yeah. Okay. Right. 
And I, I think uh, it, it probably in the place where you saw the sex shop, probably within uh, not too far from there, there probably were a lot of churches. Uh, I, do you recall? Uh, oh, in Alabama? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, there, there were. In fact, we were just we were literally just coming from Tennessee the day earlier that day where we were in one. So we, we that very day we had been in Knoxville. So I remember very well, you know, how you, you, you sense it permeates the environment. And, you know, you see churches uh, dotting the landscape everywhere, you know, very, and in the radio, when you turn the radio on in those places, it's, it's hyper-religious. There's, you know, I would venture to say that even though the Democrats have taken back Congress, the, 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 the religious fundamentalists, that doesn't mean that they've gone away. You know, in fact, it would be a cautionary tale to not be complacent and think, oh, everything's fine, let's relax now. You know, it's always got to just keep you aware of the fact that there's an agenda out there so but we saw plenty of that so it's still out there yeah yeah well uh it's politically kind of going ahead i, I noticed in you know in the 2006 uh elections we just had that the evangelical christians uh their numbers of voting for democrats went up considerably compared to the 2004 election and i think some people are saying that they were a little bit uh, turned off by some of these these sex scandals that have come out that have been kind of ret- tied to the Republicans. Yeah, yeah and- that's true. I mean, I mean, they say that a lot of the in some of the red states, um, a number of the Democrats that won seats were, were very conservative Democrats. Um, and it's not like suddenly this this you know this kind of, of ultra leftism has has swept the country. Right. And just right. a lot of you know Democrats that did win were very conservative. And, of course, the Republicans lost because they're just such hypocrites. I mean, you know, you got the head of the evangelical church in Colorado who preaches against gays and drugs. And what was that guy, Haggard? You know, he <laughs> ends up, like, having a male prostitute and snorting crystal meth. So I, I, that was uh, yeah, a big that, come down for, those, for the faithful, I would think. Right. So, so things uh, maybe are changing. What, what do you—we've uh, got to wrap up here, but, like, maybe a closing comment of where you think— uh, that whole dynamic of what you pulled out of uh, your red state road trip of, you know, where we're maybe moving. Is it changing or is it that, you know, your well, thoughts? It, I, for, just personally, it was a real catharsis for me. I remember, you know, before I started the trip, I was very bitter and cynical. And when I came out the other side of the trip, I felt like um, still very uh, cautious and uh, wary of where the country was at the time. But I, I, Coming out the other side of the Red State Road Trip, I felt hopeful, and um, I feel like uh, that's the way the country is now. It's definitely the pendulum is swinging, and you know it's just a matter of um, you know not being too vindictive, but also not being too complacent either. You know, now that you know the majority has fallen to Democrats' hands, so I mean the notion of going across the country. You know, I would would love to advise everybody to do it if they could yeah. meet people, just because it's it's something that so few people get a chance to do, so to find out what this country is really like. Because it's easy to just you know look at your your internet news and sit in your armchair and make your judgments from your armchair. Right, right. That's what I I, I used to do that, <laughs> yell at my screen and all that. So. Um, that's what this film is like, and so you know, if you're interested in checking it out, it'll it'll kind of give you a little bit of a window into that. Okay, Red well, State road trip. Yeah, so uh, give out those web addresses again, uh, Chris, for that well, one. And that, that, yeah, this is a redstateroadtrip.com. Okay, and the film we were talking about your earlier movie, I mean your later movie that we talked about earlier yeah, in that, the show. The, the other one, Voices of Katrina. Dot net. All right. And they well, sort of. 
Hmm? Okay, well, real quick, uh, anything else you want to say? I think we've wrapped uh, it up. I think I think we're, we're, we said it all. I think we have. Well, thanks. Two excellent pieces of work. Really uh, great having you on the show today, Chris Hume. Well, thank you, Robert. Thank uh, you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Bye now. I'll talk to you later. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. That's Chris Hume. And, yes, uh, two excellent movies, uh, Red State Road Trip, a 6,000-mile journey into the heart of America, and we talked earlier in the show about his other one, the more recent film, Voices of Katrina, a 12-month journey back from oblivion. So that about wraps up here, uh, this edition of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson, and you can give me some feedback at rglarson at KUCI.org or on MySpace. That's myspace.com backslash out the rabbit hole. Going to be turning it over right now to Will Bruzzo with his show, The Aggressive Moderate. And I'll be back with you next week.